For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an update on Central American asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. How the San Isidro Harvest Festival is celebrating Tucson's Chinese pioneers. A look at a new documentary about helping people to rise out of homelessness with music. And learn some of the traditions of Ramadan from a Tucson family. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Joining me now is Nancy Montoya, Arizona Public Media's border reporter, to give us some insight about the latest wave of asylum seekers who are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you, Mark. Let's start by talking about where these people are coming from and why this is happening. The latest uh, wave of immigrants heading to the U.S.-Mexico border are from Central America. They're from an area called the Northern Triangle, which are the uh, countries of Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador. Record numbers of violent acts are happening in that area, all attributed to mostly gang violence and cartel violence. Uh, Many of the people are being forced out. Uh, They are afraid in in, uh, many cases to go out in public, to go out on family outings. The violence has gotten that bad. Uh, They're not refugees. They are asylum seekers. Almost 80% are from the country of Honduras. Um, And it is beginning to overwhelm our immigration system. Uh, They're still able to keep up with the numbers coming in. But if it continues to get worse, we're going to see an overwhelmed Customs and Border Protection area. What are some of the elements of immigration and Border Patrol policy that are particularly impacting women and children and members of the LGBTQ community? I think with women and children, one of the uh, policies that has come down from uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is the very real separation of mothers from their children at the border. And of course, the the, uh, Attorney General's is saying, well, this would act as a deterrent if mothers knew that if they made it to the border, they would be separated from their children. Maybe that would deter them from coming. Of course, those who are immigrants' rights people say this is just outright outrageous, that separating mother and child is a bad idea, and it's not American. For the LGBTQ um community coming from Honduras, it's very rough. It's rougher than any other group of immigrant that is trying to flee the violence. There is a slight silver lining for them, however. They are considered, under American law, part of a particular group, which means they may have an easier time proving uh, that they are worthy of, uh, of being admitted into the U.S. Tell us about the woman that you're currently profiling. I'm profiling a woman, a transgender woman by the name of Nicole. We started following her in Honduras up through Mexico. She came up once and was denied uh, asylum. Uh, She was deported, went back to Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and was brutally attacked again because she is transgender. She was uh, raped and beaten and almost left for dead. This time, however, she was pretty smart. She documented everything. She documented through newspaper accounts, through her 
uh, medical reports, uh, through police reports, and she came up again through Mexico and to the Nogales uh, Customs, and she is again asking for asylum. The last time she did, she was denied because she didn't have enough documentation. This time she has reams and reams of documentation. We kind of lost her within the immigration system. We have found her again. She is now in New Mexico, and we plan to follow her case over the next several months to see what the asylum process is and how easy or how difficult is it. Nancy, I know all of your reporting can be found online at news.azpm.org. Thank you for your time. The Mission Gardens is a unique living history project that pays tribute to our city's diversity. It's tended and powered by the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace, volunteers of all ages and backgrounds. In the late spring, they honor the centuries-old Spanish tradition of a San Isidro Harvest Festival, a chance to share the bounty of the garden's crops with the community at large. This year, there are new additions to the Mission Garden that honor Tucson's Mexican and Chinese cultures. I asked two members of the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace, Dina Cowan and Faye Tom, to come by and share some history. It's a walled garden, and the complex is four acres. We started with the Spanish colonial fruit trees orchard and the Spanish colonial vegetable garden, Mm -hmm. and then we uh, planted the garden of native um, edible plants, and then we started with the early agriculture, which is what um, dates back to 4,000 years of of agriculture in the Tucson Basin, and uh, hohokam, and uh, autumn, uh, pre-contact before the Europeans came and uh, post-contact. So how did everything change for them? So you're working your way chronologically through the agricultural history of this area. Mm-hmm. It's telling the history of especially the agricultural and culinary history of Tucson through a garden. Now the Mission Garden Project is up to the point where this land was being settled and lived in by both Mexican and Chinese pioneers. Mm-hmm. Faye, Tom, can you give us a little bit of context for the existence of the Chinese Garden? It starts back around the 1880s with the railroad. And once the railroad finished, a lot of the Chinese stayed in in this area. And just as uh, the vegetables in in China are very important to the Chinese families, uh, they brought that idea to uh, Tucson as well. In fact, they've started their first gardens not too far away from Mission Garden in an area that, that's called the Carrillo House. Did they have much luck in being able to cultivate their native home crops in this terrain, this, this climate? Yeah, actually, it, this is a very good climate. And the area that they started in, you know, in the basin of the uh, uh, Santa Cruz River, very fertile area. And so there was, there was no problem. I mean, they were able to plant and not just the Chinese vegetables, but enough vegetables that they could actually sell the vegetables to the folks that lived in this area. Some of the summer crops are winter melon and yeah, bitter melon right. and loofah. The loofah. winter melon, you might... Yeah, most people see that as a like a sponge, you know, something to scrub a pot with. Uh, actually, before it gets to that stage, it's edible, and we stir-fry with it and add a little this and that to it and make it uh, really tasty. The winter melon is something that we uh, planted last year. And we had a little bit of a time getting it started because of how hot it was last uh, summer. But eventually Dina got the crop growing and we ended up with some winter melons, uh, some to the size of about 40 pounds. But when this melon is growing, it's got this little fuzz growing on it. 
And as it grows, that fuzz drops off and forms a white powder on this melon. And that powder gives it protection against rodents and it gives protection against uh, the elements. So it can actually, once you harvest it, it can last for two to three years in you know, a nice cool space. Where did these seeds come from to grow these very specific crops? The seeds uh, come from some of the uh, seniors that are in the community, the Chinese uh, seniors. Because back in the 30s to maybe even the 80s or so, this is a period when a lot of the Chinese had grocery stores, and they lived in the back of their store, and then back of the store there was a little area where they uh, cut out and had their gardens. And so everybody had a little garden, and that's why it's so special to me is because this sort of heritage. But we went to those people, and we got some of the seeds. Some, some of them hadn't been planted in a lot of years, so it was a little bit difficult. For example, Joyce G., who's one of our volunteers, she had been saving the seeds from her parents who had, had, who had gardened up until the 1970s. And she had been saving the seeds in jars with her father's handwriting still on what all they were, of course, in Chinese. And we, I was just going to say, <laughs> was it in English or Chinese? Yeah. And um, so not all of the seeds are viable, but a lot of them are. And um, so we're, we're taking uh, very good care of them because these are seeds that have adapted to this climate that really grew well here. So it's really important to, to try to save these seeds Another really important crop is the long bean or the yard-long bean. The Chinese people that I talked to, they all said that the long bean was, that was one of the first things they all mentioned. And uh, they also believe that if long beans stand for long life. So um, a lot of the people that I talked to also, the foods always have a meaning. They, they represent something. Well, this sounds like it's a really interesting way to bring the community into the gardens to get them involved because the families who have donated uh, some of these heirloom seeds to the project are now connected to that land in a way that they weren't before. Absolutely. And that's why we want to have this opening to introduce the community to the garden. But one of the vegetables that we really wanted to have was this thing called bitter melon. There's not a lot of seeds, I don't think, that are left because... uh, most Chinese don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so why was it important? It's important because it's culturally important. Because when you say bitter melon to a Chinese person, they always make a face like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> I'm going to eat that. <laughs> and, but it brings them back to the culture. It, it shows them the importance of some of these things. So for me, it's very important that we bring that particular vegetable back. And I'm, I'm hoping that we were able to be successful this year. Yeah, we have. We actually have a few little plants that we got going. I planted all the seeds, almost oh, all the ones we had left, and a few of them are just growing a little bit now. My guests were Dina Cowan and Faye Tom of the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace. The community is invited to sample treats, including winter melon soup, at the free San Isidro Festival. It will include dedications for the Mexican and Chinese gardens with mariachi music and dragon dancers. It's next Saturday, May 19th, from 9 a.m. to noon at the Mission Gardens, located at 945 West Mission Lane. This weekend, 
PBS stations around the country will premiere a documentary called The Homeless Chorus Speaks. It focuses on Steph Johnson, a San Diego musician who co-founded the Voice of Our City Choir as a way to build community with a group of homeless people. They help each other cope with health issues, depression, addiction, and poverty while seeking pathways out of life on the streets. Estimates from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development indicate that as many as 600,000 Americans are currently homeless. I got in touch with Johnson to talk about her work, and I asked Claudia Powell, Associate Director of the Southwest Institute for Research on Women, to share perspective on Tucson's homeless situation. My first question for Steph Johnson was how the San Diego Choir is funded. Currently, our funding is half from live performances. We do these professional performances everywhere with the full band and the full choir. The choir has grown to about 60 people. On an average performance, it's about 35. It's all donation. It's all volunteer run currently. How long have you been doing this kind of outreach, Steph? I started probably about four years ago. I was a part of another organization, and we built a rooftop garden at a shelter, and we, I would teach people about you know healthy eating, and I'd play guitar, and I, I'd um, play kind of like jazzy soul funk music, so um, people seemed to enjoy that. So it was always around music and food. And then um, I had this kind of epiphany that I could go do it on my own, and I didn't need to work with anybody else. I could just go out there with my friends, and that ended up being a really nice way to interact with people because sometimes people are out there helping and you know, you have to believe in their God or you have to do what they say. And that's not what we were about at all. We just wanted to get to know people and uh, share music and share food. So in a four-year time span, that is a pretty small window when looking at the larger situation of homelessness. But what can you say that you've seen change the most in that four-year window? We've connected over 27 people to housing off the street. That's 27 people that were living on the street and now are in either shelter or in their own place or back with family. Um, this last December had our, annual, our our concert that we did a year prior, and the choir had grown. And what I heard from a lot of people was that they had community, they had people who cared about them, and they started to believe in themselves and care about themselves more. They all have this life force energy that came back because a lot of people were suicidal and didn't have any hope. And now there's hope, and they have solos, and they sing, and they have jobs with the choir, or they've connected back with work, and it's it's been pretty transformational for them, but also for us. <laughs> it's been crazy. It's been great. Great crazy. <laughs> well, let me ask Claudia Powell about her observations from, from seeing the documentary. What do you have to say about the program that Steph's involved with? And, and is there anything like that that you can draw parallels to in Tucson? Well, first, I'd like to start by saying thank you to Steph, because it's an amazing documentary. And it's so nice to see the humanity that just really sort of radiated. I work more on the service provision side and and the research side, so we aren't as connected to the arts, and we've thought about it. There's lots of people around Tucson who have really considered it and thought about ways to integrate more of the arts. I would love to hear more about ways, Steph, if you have suggestions that we could think about um, implementing art into some of our programs and, and the work that we do here. Yeah, well, I think going around and getting to know people that are living on the street in a very respectful way. Like when you approach somebody, a lot of people are out there just handing out sandwiches or, you know, some socks, which is great. But I wanted to know what people needed or who they were. And um, 
And because we weren't affiliated with any kind of organization, right, we were just musicians out there, uh, people immediately responded and said, oh, I play guitar too, or I sing, or I write songs, here's my poetry. You know, it's a holistic approach, right? We need the services, and, and we work with service providers in San Diego and connect people to you know, getting whatever they need. I think starting with um, musicians or artists that the intention's right and they want to just share and and teach and uh, express themselves with other people, you, that's your core, right? That's your, your base. And then if there's, you know, service providers and other people who want to be aligned and, you know, connect maybe like a housing navigator or maybe medical support or dental support or whatever you can think of that, you know, that, that kind of mushrooms into, um, you know, the other services and help that they need. Yeah, certainly. I think it's just such a good reminder that homelessness can touch all kinds of people. I think that we already know that it crosses all races, ethnicities, and but um, also people who are educated, people who have served our country. Um, nobody is uh, necessarily immune to that, and that for so many of the people who are featured in the documentary, there's a whole host of people who have let them down. Um, either they didn't necessarily have families who could support them in the way they needed to be supported or raised and often are very abusive. And that's a lot of the work that I do is with LGBTQ identified homeless youth. I think that people forget that there are still families that are so homophobic or violent that they either kick their children out or they run away um, or, right yeah. or the youth run away because it's not a safe environment and so in thinking about just how vulnerable some of our young people are on the street and how important it is that we think about ways to meet their needs and provide them some sort of a support network that uh, that that people don't always have. Tucson has a concentrated effort to have a census of homeless people taken, but there is such a sizable number of people living on the streets who either feel they have or do have a vested interest in not being counted. They don't want to be on the system. And a lot of the LGBTQ youth that you refer to right now, I think would fall into that category because they're underage. The last thing they want to do is be found. What can we do to somehow close the gap between the, the population that actually exists and the population that's being numerically recognized? That count happens everywhere. So every community that receives funding from HUD um, is required to do that count. I was pleased to hear that, that officials from HUD, they recognize that too. They realize that that particular count is missing people who don't want to be counted. So though a lot of those people aren't counted during that time, it doesn't mean that they're not accessing services in some ways. So I think that there definitely needs to be uh, different kinds of outreach strategies to reach people. And, and that's one of the things when I think about art as a way to um, have people come together and be able to build that rapport and trust. Developing services that are youth or client friendly and centered will help build that trust as well. So there, there are youth who are accessing services, um, but I think the outreach strategies that we use will be ever-changing. When a police officer is called, what if it was always a therapist that was called? What if it was always like a service provider and a therapist called and not the police, which, you know, some of my choir members are terrified of the police. It has triggered so much PTSD in them. I mean, if I told you some of the stories that were how they've been treated, it's, it's totally inhumane. And that's the point that that's that's what I'm trying to change. And that's what I'm trying to show people is that um, 
you know, it's better for our communities. It's better for our society if we create a safe place for people to live. Because I don't know if you know this, but in San Diego last year, we had a huge hepatitis A outbreak. And that was created because the city closed or allowed the closure of bathrooms and sinks and hand-washing stations. I mean, over 500 people contracted hep A. We lost like over 20 people, like 20 people died in downtown San Diego, like on found in the morning on restaurant patios. I mean, it was totally horrific. And this is us allowing poor people to be criminalized and to die. You know, and I think I think we can do so much better because we want it to be a safe place. You know, Hep A can live on a doorknob for two months. So that that affects the tourists, right? That affects the people living in their homes. So there's definitely enough space. There's definitely enough resources. And um, the biggest challenge, I think, is also just changing the perception and that people see that they're just like they're just people that are down that need help, help up. I spoke with Claudia Powell, the Associate Director of the Southwest Institute for Research on Women, and Steph Johnson, leader and co-founder of the Homeless Chorus in San Diego. You can get more information at voicesofourcity.org. The documentary The Homeless Chorus Speaks debuts Sunday, May 13th at 4 p.m. on PBS 6+. The complete schedule is at azpm.org. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins on May 15th. Guided by the Islamic lunar calendar, the timing of Ramadan changes each year. Part of its observance is daily fasting from dawn until dusk, a practice intended to foster patience, reflection, and humility. Another important element of Ramadan is doing something to help others in your community. Last summer, Andrea Kelly spent an evening with a Tucson family as they prepared for iftar, the evening meal that breaks the daily fast. Hello. The Ahmed family of five relax in the late afternoon. It's almost the end of Ramadan, and tonight they've invited friends over to join them for iftar. It's typical to break the fast with friends and family. Matriarch Razia says fasting is about paying attention to what the body and the spirit need. So Ramadan means to clarify ourselves and to clarify our body and do good deeds, which we try to do it whole year long anyway, but this month of Ramadan is when our Holy Quran was revealed as well. It started revealing, so it's a very sacred month for us. She and her husband, Uber have three kids. My name is Wali Ahmed. I am Zain Ahmed. My name is Hadi Ahmed. And they're active. All three went to soccer camp this morning, in the heat, on a fast. Yeah, I just go on my normal routine. I try to take things a little easier, like not running around too much, not going outside. Razia says kids aren't expected to fast until they're old enough for their bodies to handle it. So that means if Hadi, the youngest, who is nine, wants food or water, he gets it. But for teens and adults, Uber says it's a way to shift your focus. The fasting gives us an opportunity to be more careful in our daily routine and things which we normally do can be controlled and it gives you an opportunity to control your desires of eating and also some other desires, for example, doing some wrong stuff which you're not supposed to do during the normal daily routines. So it gives you a routine for in that aspect. So you're more focused uh, and fasting is a component in which you don't eat or drink anything from sunrise to sunset. Uber is a doctor and says he feels supported and respected during Ramadan by the people who work with him. Started 3.30, um, stopped my, start my fast uh, by 3.57. After 
the morning prayers, I slept uh, and then woke up at uh, seven o'clock, got ready and went to work. I'm a physician. So in the meantime, other than morning prayers, uh, I offered my afternoon prayers, which is Zuhr prayer. And uh, hopefully we are going to do uh, evening prayer, which is Asr and, um, and two more prayers. One after op starting opening the fast and then at nighttime again. And Razia's day? Since I have all the energy in the morning, since I ate the food, so I try to prepare the iftar, which usually happens like later in the day. It's like 7.40 nowadays, that's the time of Maghrib. So that's when we start to eat. So I have, I prepare dinner and I pre prepare the iftar during like afternoon time. So it's just better that way. Then I go pick them up if they have soccer camp or anything and then do all my other duties that as a mom I have to do. But now, with friends gathered, they chat and wait for the sun to slip behind the mountain slope to the west. This part of the afternoon, spending time with friends, Wali says that's special. It's a very important part of Ramadan because you feel like you're not doing this by yourself. There are other people who know what you're going through and that are there to support you. Like a lot of other households, the women gravitate toward the kitchen to set up the potluck. The men and kids also clump in groups. Everyone is waiting, checking their watches. They haven't eaten since the fast began at about 4 a.m. With Ramadan in the summer this year, the sun doesn't go down until about 7.40 p.m. When it's finally time to break the fast, family friend Faisal Salim does a call to prayer, marking the end of the day. They eat a small plate of food to satiate. I have prepared something, it's like a fruit melody. So it's all fruits and um, like different fruits, um, bananas, apples, all mixed together, honeydew, all mixed together in Pakistani spices and some sugar. And then it's just, it tastes good. And then there's something called lassi. Lassi is like a yogurt drink yogurt, milk, and some water and sugar. And then um, we'll have something called samosas and then pakoras. And then there's a full meal. My friend uh, Sadia will be bringing some rice with chickpeas and then she's preparing some chicken stew. So it will be quite fun. I'm sure it will feel good now. But between the snack and the meal, the prayers. After the guests check their compasses, they line up in rows, facing Mecca. Uber is in the front, leading the group. They all pray together just after sunset. You struggle the whole day, and at the end of the day, you are saying, you know, I did it for Allah, and uh, I look forward to be more uh, doing the same thing if required, or focusing on the prayers or be a good person the whole day and we can do the same thing the rest of the days when even when you're not fasting. If you can do charity, if you can do charity in that month, you should do charity. We are going to go to the Casa Maria. We make lunches for homeless people and then we also put it in boxes and give it to them, also, like sandwiches. We also contribute to, to needy people and especially refugees who can be helped and contribution, more contribution to the mosque because this month of Ramadan are, if you do good deeds, they are multiplied uh, much more as compared to the regular month or when you are not fasting or you're not in Ramadan. And this family says it's important to them to help educate non-Muslims about their religion. I think there, uh, not a lot of people are aware of what actual Islam is. 
So for them, it might be a different way of thinking, just whatever you get it from news and whatever you get it from other friends. So if they come directly to a Muslim, it's better to get a first-hand answer as to what Islam is. And the more people know, the more people are aware of it, it helps them realize that we are just regular human beings like everyone else. It feels good that um, our month people are seeing how we do our religion and so then people can know what we do. After the food, the kids' energy spikes and the night becomes a little more hectic. There's more giggling, louder voices. Uber says every night isn't quite like that after iftar. Normally most of the time in the evening when we are at home and the family is here and before iftar we recite Quran, the holy book. So, and we do that more and more during the month of Ramadan also. And most importantly, uh, we feel good when the, all the kids are sitting on the table with us and we talk about that thing and different issues, including the daytime. So it gives an opportunity for us to all to be on the table also. I look forward to having the time at the end to celebrate a lot and presents. Um, but also I get to spend a lot more time with my family. I am happy for it. After the pious and dutiful month of Ramadan ends, Eid al-Fitr is a time for celebration. It begins when the final day's fast is broken and officially continues for three more days. Uber says it's common to continue holding celebratory gatherings with friends and family for about two weeks. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Andrea Kelly. That story was recognized with an Edward R. Murrow Award from the Radio Television Digital News Association. You can find the TV version on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.